Castle, episode 436, for October 4th, 2016. A flash fiction extravaganza. Elements. Rated PG-13. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle, where all the castle residents have elemental powers. I'm quite a strong potassium bender myself. I'm your host, Jen Albert. Earth, fire, air, water, these classical elements and many others were once thought to be what made up all matter, but now they've made their way into public consciousness and into pop culture. Elemental powers are ubiquitous in fantasy fiction. They show up in countless books, games, movies, comics, from D&D to Avatar The Last Airbender to Fantastic Four and, well, many major fantasy series. I think I first encountered them in a game called Quest for Glory, where the hero takes down elemental monsters who terrorize the streets of a once peaceful city. I'm certain seasoned fantasy fans such as yourselves have come across these many, many times. But this week we have four original tales. And I do mean original. Podcastle is the first publication for all four stories. We hope these tales bring something fresh, breathe new life into an old trope. And speaking of breath, your first story is Gaps of Joy and a Knot for Love by S.B. Divya. S.B. Divya is a lover of science, math, fiction, and the Oxford comma. When she isn't designing high-speed communication systems, raising her daughter, scratching the cats, or enjoying dinner with her husband, she writes. Her stories have appeared in daily science fiction and nature. Her near-future science fiction novella, Runtime, is available from Tor.com Publications. You can read more about her at www.sbdivya.com. Your narrator for this story has appeared in the cast a few times now, Nadia Niaz. Nadia is a writer, academic, language nerd, creative writing teacher, and third culture kid who now lives in Melbourne, Australia. She divides what little downtime she has between cooking, knitting, painting, dancing, powerlifting, and now narrating stories for Podcastle. So sit back, relax, breathe in, and out and enjoy a story of air. Gaps of Joy and a Knot for Love by S.B. Divya Prakash's wife lay on a mattress as old as their marriage and as sunken as her cheeks. Davy's hair was grey like the threadbare curtains, her body swollen and sweaty with betrayal, consuming itself in an immunological civil war. The doctor had shrugged in apology and prescribed pain medicine. Nothing else we can do, he'd said, and left. Their careworn daughter stood beside the bed. They'd named her Cushy, Happiness, and Prakash's magic had kept her true to her name until Davy became ill. Shadows crowded the space under Cushy's eyes, lines furrowed in her skin with a depth that belonged to someone older, someone like her father. She clutched an empty plastic bottle. We have no money left for more pills, she whispered over her mother's ragged snores. How much rice do we have? Enough for two days, but we've nearly run out of milk. I'll go to the parks today. It's only Wednesday, but perhaps a few families will be there. Prakash felt for his last pocket of happiness and blew a soft breath at his wife. Her breathing quieted. Not as effective as drugs, but better than nothing. Cushy watched and shuddered the tension of an addict in withdrawal. Guilt stabbed at Prakash. Months had passed since he had enough joy to share with Cushy. His daughter's work as a cook paid their bills. His tips from bubble-blowing earned enough to pay for their grains. Their happiness, however, could not be resupplied with money. He left the room and gathered his supplies. A bottle of water, a jug of soapy solution, and a thin white towel. Outside, a light breeze pushed against the sultry air of Tiruchi. A crack in the middle of Prakash's sandal dug into his foot as he hobbled over uneven roads. Auto rickshaws honked and careened past him, while the two-wheelers let their motors do the talking. Move over, old man, lest we crush your feet. He paused at his usual turn. To the right lay the wealthier neighbourhoods, with their manicured parks and children in western clothing and parents who dropped generous bills at his feet. 
The children shrieked in delight at his handiwork, but the air of adult suspicion, never trust an old man in rags, tainted their joy. Two days' worth of rice, Cushy had said. The strain on her face gnawed at his resolve. Turn left today to the shanties. The good parks would be mostly empty until the weekend, three days away. They could make the food stretch until then. Prakash turned left toward the shanties where he grew up, the neighborhoods he'd neglected since his wife took ill. He knew he was close when he could smell the sewage and rotting food. He filled his lungs, best to get it over with. The sound of young voices, calling, laughing, exclaiming, reached him next. He rounded the corner. Barefoot boys with skin the color of sandalwood and eyes like night played a riotous game of cricket. Their field was dirt, broken bricks, cement rubble. Bits of plastic littered the uneven surface like dusty jewels. Bubble Tata! They called him grandfather, though he had no grandchildren of his own. Not yet, but when, if, Cushy had children, they would inherit his magic. Stop the game! He's back! At their cries, girls emerged from tin shanty doors like shy butterflies, strands of jasmine woven through their braids, and black paste marking their foreheads with perfect tiny dots. They threaded into the cluster of boys, their faces alight with sunshine and bright expectation. Warm air stirred as Prakash took his first gulp of soap solution. He closed his eyes, found the hard knot of love nestled between his heart and stomach, used it to push the solution through his lungs, into his mouth, and out, out, and away, between lips forming an O of wonder. The first outpouring was a cluster of small but multitudinous bubbles, at least one for each child to catch. The girls and boys shrieked, leaping about like cubs chasing after birds. Prakash inhaled their unadulterated joy. It flew to him on currents of air. He drew it through his lungs and beyond, to the interstices of his abdomen where laughter liked to live. He took more time with the next round. He sent forth great oblong shapes, longer than any child was tall and fatter by a wide margin. The younger ones watched in awe as the prodigious forms swirled with every color of the rainbow. The older ones jumped and tried to pop the bubble's undulating bellies. They got all but one. It floated away over rooftops of thatch and cement, disappearing into the aquamarine sky. More, Tata, more! Their eagerness nestled into the warmth of his gut. He drew on the gentle possessiveness this instilled and shaped his cheeks and tongue and lips to produce a menagerie of soapy air. Rabbits, lions, giraffes, deer, and the more familiar, cows, goats, chickens, drifted over the lot like delicate blown glass. A tendril of disappointment stole into him with the next indrawn breath. A young girl wearing peacock green stood to one side, frustration painting her face. She was new to him. He beckoned her over. What's the matter? he said. I can't catch any of them. I run fast, but I always miss. Try standing still. Let the bubble find you and then chase it. She returned to her spot, skepticism in her posture. The joy he gathered was precious, but he spent a pinch to infuse the peacock-shaped bubble that floated her way. Her doubt made way for wonder, the happiness she exuded more than made up for what he'd lost, and his insides swelled. Clouds blew in on the next breeze, casting shadows and dulling the shine on Prakash's creations. Afternoon thunder rumbled in the distance. The children groaned as one. They knew that the show was over, and they murmured their thanks as they drifted home. Will you come again? asked the peacock girl. He rinsed his mouth with water, wiped it clean with the towel, and spoke. Tomorrow and every day but Saturday. 
Why not Saturday? Because I get more happiness here than anywhere else, but I am still human. I need to make money to feed my family. The first heavy drops landed. The daily downpour followed within minutes. Prakash's leather sandals became waterlogged and slippery with mud. The knot of love below his heart felt loose, ragged, but joy rumbled and quivered in his abdomen. It begged so hard for release. Let me help you. That he capitulated. He had plenty to spare today. The house smelled of boiled milk and steamed rice, simple food for strained constitutions. Prakash dried off and went to the bedroom. Kushi lay beside her mother, the lines of strain eased by sleep. As he gazed at them, love gathered the frayed edges of the knot below his heart. He sat on the chair next to his wife and took her hand. You're here, Devi whispered without opening her eyes. Yes. Prakash inhaled, drew joy from deep in his belly, and blew the infused mist toward his wife's face. Her breath grew more even. A touch of color returned to her skin. The corners of her lips tipped upward in a gentle curve like the base of a bubble. It's better than the medicine, she murmured, passing into her dreams once more. Cushy stirred, opened her eyes and sat up. Did you bring the milk? I'll start on dinner. She rose and walked toward the door. Wait, Prakash said. I didn't get any milk or money. But I don't understand. Forgive me. I think we need comfort even more. He placed his hand on Cushy's head as if to bless her. Bubbles the size of champagne effervescence passed between them, and a sigh escaped her lips. Her frown eased, her shoulders lifted, her smile reflected her name. Thank you, Appa. I'll cook some rice, just enough for Amma, none for you or me. Cushy's gaunt figure left the room. Prakash returned to his bedside vigil, ignoring the hunger cramps in his stomach, exhaling well-being and inhaling the love that saturated their home. Little by little, he repaired the frayed knot below his heart. By morning, the gaps in his belly would be empty, but his love perfect. Welcome back. Of this story, S.P. Divya says... The seed for this story came from an older gentleman who created amazing bubbles in a local park. When I thanked him, he was grateful and said he came there because no one at home appreciated his art. Earlier that year, I'd visited family in South India, where I saw kids playing cricket in a location like the one in this story. I wondered what might happen if a man with magical bubbles lived in a place like that. And from there, the story came to life. Our next story is Green Girl by Erica Rupert. Erica writes speculative fiction and poetry in her home in northern New Jersey. Her work has appeared in Non-Binary Review, Eternal Hunted Summer, and Weird Book, among others. She is very slowly working on her first novel. Reading the story for you is a voice you know well. It's Podcastle assistant editor and editor of the upcoming Artemis Rising event, Khalida Muhammad Ali. Kalita lives in Houston, Texas with her husband of 25 years and three children. By day, she works as a breast oncology nurse. At all other times, she juggles none too successfully, writing, reading, gaming, and gardening. She has self-published one novel entitled An Unproductive Woman and has published a story at Escape Pod and has a story in the An Alphabet of Embers anthology. Of her alter ego, Kay from the planet Vega, it is rumored she owns a time machine and knows the secret to long youth. You can catch her posts at her website, www.kalita.com, and you can follow her on Twitter, at Kalita. So, now, a story of, you guessed it, Earth. Green Girl by Erica Rupert Sharp spring came, and with it mud. Cold, early rains turned the still frosty soil to a rich black paste, something that clung to your boots and spoiled the rugs. Clea didn't care that it did. After the deprivations of winter, a little mud was good for the soul, but she was surprised to find it all over the sheets. Danny grumbled beside her 
as she held the covers up to examine her black-streaked legs. Specks of soil rolled on the sheets between them. She felt grains of it still damp beneath her hips and shoulders. She lay still as a rabbit for a moment. This was all so familiar. A clock in the parlor chimed. Clea awoke. It was only going on eight, early for a Sunday, when Clea came in barefooted from the deep, foggy yard with her hands full of wet roots and thin, springy branches. She cradled them to her chest like birds. There was life in them, waiting to will out. Clea walked softly down the house's center hallway, her footsteps cushioned with mud. She glanced in at Danny as she passed the bedroom, a faint curve on her dry lips, a low song in her throat. Although the shades were up for the pearly morning light, Danny still slept. Wrapped in crisp white sheets, his mouth opened in a snore. In the quiet kitchen, Clea lay her gatherings on the wide enameled sink and turned the tap on low. Cool water splashed off the tangled brown roots. She pressed the knotted things under the rinsing water, smiling softly at how the plane of the water distorted their lines, at the chill in her hands, at the pale blue flush that altered her skin. Dirt seamed her nails, black grain shifted down through the clear water to sand the white enamel. Beneath the skin of the blue, clean water, Clea bent the thin green branches into a circlet, tying the fragile ends to each other in a thick knot, tucking clumps of roots between the seams as decoration. She lifted her new crown high, dripping, and settled it on her unbrushed hair. Delicate streams ran down the curves of her cheek and nose, dripped from her pointed chin. She wiped the drops away where they tickled and sucked the water and dirt from her fingers. Ennobled, she shucked off her robe and bottoms and walked flat-footed down the hallway to the bedroom, crumbs of rich mud scattered in her wake. She leaned over the bed, scenting him. Her cool hands moved in patterns over his sleeping face. He sighed like a child. Danny. She breathed. Oh, Danny boy. He roused and rolled over, away from her. But Clea was not to be refused, not with a crown of new branches on her head and the earth itself in her teeth. She worked his nightshirt from his shoulders and used it to cover his eyes. He laughed and struggled, but not hard enough to win. When she drew him to his feet and pushed him along before her, he laughed again and toddled where she steered. She led him out into the cold, wet air to the broad stump in the middle of the long garden, which had been a tall oak until an autumn storm shattered it. She sat him down on it and stepped quickly behind him and tugged the nightshirt from his eyes. He looked up into the white morning sky, waiting. The damp nest of twigs scratched down his forehead as she gave the crown to him, and then he felt her fingers slip over his cheeks. He expected something else when she used her curved, dirty fingers to push the roots from the crown of his eager mouth. The roots and her skin tasted of earth and damp wood, and he choked, trying to swallow. Hush now. Clea crooned, her chin pressing his. She licked his open lips and smiled at him. Can you feel it yet? Danny's eyes bulged from the pressure in his throat, but he nodded. She tucked her legs up between his, spread his thighs with her own. What came out of her then flowed out in a surge, black mud and roots and thin twining vines that reached for him, sucked at his flesh and found its way in. Soon the roots had sprung a dense net between them, binding them one to the other at the hips. 
There you go, she whispered, riding him, biting at his ear. She pulled him close and rolled with him on the wide stump, dragging Danny over and atop her. Green rimmed the wet of his eyes like duckweed in a pond. Pale leaves opened along his jaw. He laughed around the tendrils spreading out from his face. It sounded like a song. They grew into each other, soft earth spilling from their split skins where the rye tendrils climbed toward a distant sun. Roots wormed their way from them into the stump, breaking up the spongy wood and driving toward the black earth below. Soon a burst of thin new trunks grew where the old oak had been, a braided column of saplings and water sprouted that suggested a bending form. The clock in the parlor chimed again. Clea woke again. She rose with clear-eyed vigor, swung her muddy legs from the bed, and padded out to the kitchen for coffee without stopping to wash. In nothing but her rumpled nightclothes, she stepped out into the half-submerged paving stones by the back door, leaving the door unlatched to let the freshening breeze blow through the house. A fine mist dimmed the bright morning air, the day still too early for it to be burned off by the sun. She clasped her hands around her coffee mug and considered the young oak tree now rising in the center of the deep yard. Beneath her bare feet, the earth began to warm. Danny, she cried loudly through the open door behind her. Come see. Welcome back again. Of this story, Erica says, Green Girl is probably the most upbeat story I've ever written, despite its immediate influences being Thomas Ligotti and The Wicker Man. Our next story is Dragon Fancy by Lee Wallace. Lee is a writer and artist from Ottawa. Her fiction has been published in Tesseract's 19, Superhero Universe, and her art is forthcoming in the Sun Vault Anthology of Solar Punk and Eco Speculation. She is a graduate of the 2013 Viable Paris Writing Workshop. She works as an analyst on the Access to Information and Privacy Acts for the Government of Canada. Stepping back into the narration booth is Kim Rogers. Kim is an EMC actress who can be found at Music Theatre International, where she has the pleasure of assisting theatres with all their licensing needs. She has recently workshopped musicals at Lincoln Centre and for BMI Workshop. She lives with her husband in Brooklyn and can be heard at the top of every episode of The Kaleidoscope, available on iTunes and SoundCloud. So now, fire. Dragon Fancy by Lee Wallace There are dragons everywhere. I've never been to a Dragon Fancier show before. I get my badge and table assignment and push my contestant in her covered baby carriage down the center aisle. I try to see everything at once. Did you know pygmy squiggles with their curly fringe come in hot pink? Me neither. And I've never seen a wormicorn before. There's one with a glowing horn. I love dragons. I love every kind of dragon. I'm such a loser. I know. But for once, I'm the same kind of loser as everybody else here. Everyone's so excited to see each other and catch up on each other's dragon news. I wish I knew some of them. I'm too shy to go right up to their dragons and check out their wards. My little copper mutt, dirigible, is very garden variety, a.k.a. cheap. But I'll bet you anything that nobody's got a hoard quite like hers. I was thrilled when she didn't turn out to be a common sparkle hoarder like so many other dragons. You can't show them. Sparkles just get everywhere, and it makes sense that the convention centers won't allow it anymore. Well, don't get me wrong. Dirge's hoard is a total pain. But at least she's not disqualified. And maybe she even has a shot at the unique Horde Award. Well, we'll see during judging. 
As I make my way toward the center of the big convention room, there's a bit of a kerfluffle near a dragon on a tiny hoard of opals. My, my, actual gemstones. What a lush. A lady is upset that her table assignment is next to theirs because her dragon hoards seashells, which look enough like opals to risk the dragons getting competitive and violent. Everyone within earshot is nodding. I nod, too. To nobody in particular. It's a legitimate concern. There's no safer place for valuables than in a dragon horde, but if a dragon decides another one is a rival, one of them will die. Hey, if you want a sweet, easy-going pet, get a dog. Or a chupacabra. A show volunteer hurries over to shuffle the table assignments around. A low hiss emits from my baby carriage. Okay, okay, someone's getting restless. I hurry on toward my aisle. We're up against a wall, and the table next to us is still empty, so Dirge will have some time to settle in. I don't want her to get up tight around the other dragons. They don't tend to like each other, and they have absolutely no chill. I quickly pull the water dish, food bowl, and litter box from my bag. Next to me, the baby carriage jiggles a bit, and a white claw sticks out through the cover. I hear a high-pitched growl from inside. Someone is ready to be let out. Now comes the tricky part. I gently unstick the claw and pull back the cover. Four pairs of shiny yellow eyes peer back at me. Vertical pupils contracting and adjusting to the overhead lights. I reach in slowly and unthreateningly, then spread my hands carefully under the cushion laid out in the bed of the carriage. If you want to move a dragon, you have to move its hoard. And if you want to move a dragon hoard, well, do it carefully. In as smooth a motion as possible, I swoop the cushion with Dirge and her hoard still on top onto the table. Then I freeze and wait. For a moment, all is stillness. Dirge's muscles are all tightly wired under her coppery scales. Her eyelids pulled as far back as they'll go. She lets out a pent-up breath, and just when I think everything's going to be fine, a cat zips from between her legs toward the table's edge. With whip-like speed, Dirge clamps a forepaw down on a puffed-up orange tail and huffs indignantly. Well, don't look at me, I say to her. You're the one who picked cats, of all things. Dirge eyes me sideways and drags the orange tabby, who I call Shitstain, back to plop him on top of the other two. She stretches her forelegs around them all and doesn't look at me. Dragons are not interested in uninformed opinions. They are the experts in hordes. And if she wants cats, she gets cats. Dirge stretches out and curves her neck in a perfect, regal S. Well, she seems to be settled in. That's all that matters. I reach over to give her snout a scratch, and she tilts it just out of reach. The cats squirm around each other, and Dirge gives them a rough poke with her nose. She and I don't care much whether they're comfortable, as long as they're properly hoarded. I honestly don't get the appeal of cats, but whatever. The one good thing about cats is that I think we have a shot at winning the hoard award. You rarely see dragons with hoarded pets. There was one with goldfish that got big on YouTube until the overstocked aquarium poisoned all the fish. But that's the closest I've ever heard of. Dirge and the cats are settled in, or as settled in as Shitstain ever gets. Dirge has her hoard and her bit of territory, and I can be confident that she'll stay put. The judges have started their rounds, but they're still in the first aisle. I decide it's safe for me to have a quick stroll and check out the merchandise tables. In ten minutes, I'm back, in a full dragon onesie, with wings, a glowing plastic necklace shaped like flames, and a cartoon dragon painted on my cheek. Yes, I'm a loser.
but today I'm a happy loser. Dirge is scraping her talons into the surface of the table in a circle around the two other cats. Schutzstein is now squashed under Dirge's hind leg and seems to be temporarily tamed. Also, someone is now setting up her dragon at the next table. We nod to each other. Friendly, but not too friendly. I don't interrupt her since the judges are turning down our aisle and she's not ready. I busy myself fluffing Dirge's cushion. But Shitstain lunges out and sinks a claw into my finger. Ow, you little Shitstain! My neighbor chuckles. Fucking cats, right? I so know. Cool horde, though. I shiver a little inside. I knew they were a cool horde. I knew it. She's got her dragon and horde laid out now. Whoa. I breathe. It's an honest-to-goodness fire breather. Its fringe wavers and glows at the tips ever so slightly. As if she sees me staring, it lets a lazy curl of smoke wisp out of its left nostril, its smug eyes half-closed. I can't say I blame it. It's magnificent. Then I notice that it's perched atop a little tower of books. Whoa, I say to the other woman. I can't think of anything more specific to say. I'm just standing and pointing at her dragon. I force my hand down. God, I am such a loser. She just nods. I mean, she knows how awesome her dragon is. No sense having fake modesty. But she's not a dick about it. I like that. Dragon people are the coolest people. I go on. But like, I'm sure you always get asked this, so sorry, but a fire breather who hoards books, as in paper. She shrugs. I know, but she's careful. So far. The dragon, as if to demonstrate her lack of concern, dismounts from the tower, opens the top book, and props it up against the others before settling down to read. I nod. Okay, then. I can't think of anything to say that doesn't sound stupid, and anyway, the judges are here to check out the fire breather. They are duly impressed, and the fire breather is the picture of nonchalance. Just as the judges move on to dirge, Shitstain makes a break for it. Of course! He makes it right to the edge of the table before a taloned forepaw claps down on his neck. It's not Dirge's forepaw. It's the fire breather's. The two dragons are utterly motionless, their eyes piercing into one another's. The cats are still and wary. Even Shitstain hasn't struggled to get free. That's when I noticed the book the fire breather was reading. It's a cat book. A fucking cat book. Uh, I say. Yeah, the other woman says. The fire breather's slim tongue slides out from between its front teeth, a lick of flame flickering off the forked tip. One of these dragons is going to die. No, let's be real. Dirge is going to die. Because of shit stain. Fucking cats! I hiss. It takes me a while to realize that Dirge is moving, almost too slowly to see. Her yellow eyes are still locked on the other dragon but she's extending her own foreleg toward Shitstain. Oh, just let him go. He's useless. I can get another damn cat, a better cat, an upgrade. But that's not how this works. He's hers, Shitstain or no. 
She will fight for him. She will fight a fire breather. And she will lose. Dirge's paw hovers over the cat's orange hindquarters, but she doesn't touch him yet. Her talons pass over where the fire breather's paw clutches shit stain by the neck. She slowly but firmly lays her paw on the cat book. The fire breather's eyes flick from the book to shit stain to Dirge's intent gaze. The other two cats, now bored, start kicking each other in the face because cats are idiots. The fire breather now pulls Shitstain toward her a little bit, maybe just an inch. Dirge curls her claw around the book. Then, as if choreographed, the book and the cat slide past each other over the small gap between the two tables. The two dragons turn their backs on each other for all the world as if neither could care less about the other. They tend to their hordes. Dirges now consisting of two cats and one cat book and the fire breathers of a small library with a cat for good measure. Dirge starts flipping through the pages and Shitstain leaps to the top of the book pile while the fire breather watches with a doting glint in its eye. Excited cheers and chatter erupt all around us. I had no idea the whole room was watching. I had no idea that the judges had been right there. I had no idea I'd been crushing the fire breather owner's hand in mine. She doesn't let go. There are phones pointed at us. This will be on YouTube in 10 minutes. Before I get home, Wikipedia will be updated with the announcement of the first evidence of dragon barter. Oh, and Dirge tied with the fire breather for best horde. I guess cats are good for something. I think I can live with being this kind of loser. Welcome back again. Of this story, Lee says, The seed for this story was a drawing I tried to make of fancy dragons at a dragon show, inspired by YouTube videos of ridiculous fancy chickens, like Frizzles. I recommend checking out Frizzles if you haven't already, they're hilarious. Art being the tricksy thing that it is, the drawing turned into a story before I managed to get out my pencil, but I'll take what I can get. Our next and final story is The Seventh Year by Alexandra Balasha. Alexandra is completing her master's degree in creative writing at Edinburgh Napier University. She writes speculative fiction with a psychological edge and gravitates toward themes of identity and moral ambiguity. Her writing has appeared in Beyond Science Fiction Magazine, The Lorelei Signal, and Danforth Review. And reading this story, A Man That Needs No Introduction, my co-editor Graham Dunlop. So last, but certainly not least, we bring you a tale of water. The Seventh Year by Alexandra Balassa. I long to be free, I long to live large. I make my coin raiding boat and barge. Take what I want, do as I please. I fear no keeper of the seas. So say the men who foolishly rove into the depths of Cassifia's cove. From Seafarer's Blight, a pirate song of unknown origin. Streamers of blood trailed after Ibrim's ankles as he moved farther into the ocean. He stopped, calf-deep, watching the red swirls his passing had set into motion. They clouded the otherwise turquoise water, which seemed to glow between the corals with its own inner light. Ibrim lifted his eyes to the horizon. In the distance, the freedom's backlit silhouette rose from the ocean like a parley flag, its broken hull angled as if it had frozen while sinking. The Bachelor's Freedom, he'd named it. Seven years of being Cassifia's slave, and the irony of it still bit deep. Cruel bastards for gods. Behind the shipwrecked galley, shafts of light streaked the pre-dawn sky. Not for the first time it struck Ibrim how perfectly preserved the scene was. 
The blood, the slanted hull impaling the ocean, the pale body beneath its surface. How fitting this static embalmed moment. The sun could wander the sky all it wanted. For Ibrim, time had stopped the day Cassifia had sunk on the freedom. That was how she'd wanted it. But today, time would start again. Ibrim waded further into the water, the salty breeze whipping his hair around his shoulders. He stopped knee-deep and looked down at the pale corpse beneath the water's surface. Over the years, corals had grown around the body, cradling it like an aquatic coffin. No tension creased the youth's brow. No tightness besmirched his full boyish lips. Yet the same question plagued Ibram's mind. Are you suffering down there, Evra, like I'm suffering up here? Was he lonely to be the last of the seven bodies that had once slept beneath the waves? Garrick, his first mate. Mattia, his quartermaster. One by one, Cassifia had woken them, sent them home on the backs of the sea creatures she commanded. All except for Evra. Ibram bent down, his knees sinking into wet sand, and reached under the water to smooth wayward hair from the ivory face. It's time, brother. Today the witch will set you free. She'll set us both free. You'll see. As if an answer, a sliver of sun peeked over the horizon. It climbed the sky, crimson as the blood in the water, the final tally to Ibram's seven years of imprisonment. By the time the red sphere hovered on the horizon, the sky had lightened enough to reveal the mountainous bulge of the island behind him. You don't believe I'll keep my promise, do you? Cassifia's voice was like the caress of cold steel along Ibrim's spine. He stood, turning to face her. You've kept it every year so far. The words sounded brittle, a poor barrier for the swears and threats he'd learned to push into the back of his throat. I have no reason to think this year will be any different. Cassifia cocked her head. Everything is different this year, Ibram. Your brother is the last of the seven. If I free him, there will be nothing holding you here. Don't you fear I won't do it? He let the whoosh of waves along the shore and the whistle of sea wind fill his silence. When did you lose your anger, Ibrim? There was something n naive about the question a childish curiosity that reminded him that she still struggled to understand humanity. Sea demon or devil goddess or whatever she was, Ibrim often thought Cassifia examined him as a child would an ant, methodically pulling its legs off to see if it showed pain. After Tavern, I think, he answered truthfully. He was? The one you woke on the fourth year. One of my riggers always hated the swine. Damn thief he was, and I told you as much. Told you I was happy to see his ugly face frozen under the water. Told you if you woke him before Evra, I'd kill you. Recognition flitted across Cassifia's face. She smiled like it was a fond memory. Ah, of course. Some of your best assassination attempts came that year. Then you just stopped trying. I realised you'd save Evra for last, and my rage wouldn't change that. She stepped towards him. Water parted for her as she moved, the hem of her cerulean wrap gown clinging to the wet sand. Cassifia took his hand between both of hers. Ibrim's fingers tensed, but he didn't pull away. The hound wouldn't bite the feeding hand before mealtime. Didn't you grow to care for me at all? she asked. His eye twitched. The ghost of the untamed pirate he'd once been took hold. He almost told her he did care, care to snap her damned neck. But then his eyes flicked to Evra's pearly face beneath the water and the domesticated dog returned. I don't care about anything, not without my brother. Cassifia's sea-green eyes grew tearful. 
Ibrim had learned not to let these vulnerable moments take him off his guard. One misstep and she'd become a raging sea beast to the ocean and skies roiling at her command. Do you know why I saved you from the shipwreck? she asked. While everyone else was swimming for your lives, you were pulling your brother to safety. That amount of devotion shown to a miserable mortal life, it astonished me. Man does not show a sliver of that devotion to the gods. I wanted a love like that. I swear, Ibrim croaked, I will be forever devoted to you if you wake my brother. I am not a pious man, but I will pray at your temples and make you whatever sacrifices you desire. I swear it. The pleading desperation in his own voice sickened him. How many had he taken captive aboard the Freedom, only to slit their throats in disgust when they offered him but snivelling pleas for their lives? I told you I would wake one of your crew members, for every year you stayed with me, and every year I did. She squeezed his hand and released it, gliding over to the spot where Everest slept. Water drew away from his bed of corals, forming a knee-high enclosure around him that completed the coffin look. Ibrim held his breath. He clenched his fists and waited for the first signs of life to ease back into Evra's face. Please, please. The water walls enclosing Evra collapsed, swallowing him in a gurgle of waves. I'm sorry, Cassifia whispered. I can't lose the only hold I have over your heart. Your brother will remain under my control until you learn to love me. She paused, then asked in that childish way of hers, Are you angry? Ibrim didn't look at her. His fists slowly uncurled as he watched the shifting waters distort his brother's features. No. He stood looking at Evra for a long time, until the sun crested the sky and Cassifia had long glided back up the beach. The body beneath the waves was a cannonball, chained to his ankle. And Ibram was the chain, keeping Evra suspended in a state of living death. Chest tingling with emptiness, Ibram plucked his carved knife from his boot. It was time to break those chains. And welcome back. Of this last story, Alexandra says, This piece was an exercise for a creative writing course. The prompt was to write a story based on mythology. The seventh year draws from the story of Calypso and Odysseus from the Odyssey. So how did you like today's stories? You can stop them by the forums at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know. Speaking of the forums, we have comments from our last flash fiction extravaganza, Podcast of 425, Transformations. The episode was well-liked, with commenters especially connecting to Sunil Patel's Girl in Blue Dress. Bionic Valkyrie said, I loved Girl in Blue Dress from the first sentence. Khalida Muhammad Ali has a wonderful voice, all honey and whiskey. I liked the gradual reveal of the girl being trapped, and the final image of her kicking at that artist's signature, so he'll be forgotten as well. Devoted135 seemed to like all three stories, saying, Girl in Blue Dress. Ah, beautiful but so tragic. She's been kidnapped and had everything, including her identity, taken from her. Scary. Mirabilis. The narrator was so tender and observant of her twin's transformation. She understood the pain, but also the consequences that her twin was risking. Portrait of my wife as a boat. The line right before the last section, where the narrator cajoles themselves. Don't say I love you to a boat. Don't. Don't. That was so beautiful and mournful. The whole episode was a case of so sad, it hurts so good. Bounce Swoosh said, I think all the stories had a sort of ethereal quality that made them hard for me to follow. I was left with an impression rather than a solid picture of events. Some stories are so vivid that when I'm done reading, I have created a movie in my mind. Others are more ephemeral, like a haunting melody that sometimes comes to mind in snippets. 
Thanks to everyone who commented. And as always, if you have any comments on our stories, head over to the forums and have at it. And now it's time to go, but not to worry. We'll be back next week, as always. So on behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, our four moderators, Talia and Aussie Cat, our audio producer, Peter Wood, our associate editors, Arun Jiwa, Setsu Uzume, Christiana Fermeller, Troy Wiggins, Aidan Doyle, Crystal Claxton, Raj Gopal, and Matt Dovey, our assistant editor, Khalida Muhammad Ali, your co-editors, Graham Dunlop, and myself. Thanks for stopping by and sharing these stories with us. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is Jen Albert reminding you to get out that periodic table and study up on your elements. There'll be a test next week. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. To find out more about them, check out their website at www.shiva-in-exile.de. We rely on you to keep PodCastle flying. You can make a regular donation for as little as $2 a month, or make a one-off donation of any amount. You can set up donations at the PodCastle website. Go to podcastle.org and find the Support Us section down the right-hand side. If you can't donate, that's okay. You can help us by telling others about PodCastle. Blog about us, tweet about us, review us on iTunes. Anything you can think of to help spread the word. Our quote today comes from XKCD. I am the avatar of all four elements. Really? I'm Mendeleev, master of 118 plus. Swoosh. That was polonium bending. You probably didn't feel anything, but the symptoms of radiation poisoning will set in shortly. 